Today, we continue our journey through the two great sacraments of the church with Holy Eucharist. And I have to be honest with you, I enjoyed this conversation with Bryn so much. And I know you will as well as we dig into this beautiful and sacred liturgy, this beautiful sacrament. So grab that cup of joe, grab that prayer book, and sit back and get ready for a wonderful ride. Welcome to Lit, a podcast dedicated to life, liturgy, and the pursuit of holiness. I'm Bryn. And I'm Justin, and we're coming to you from beautiful Austin, Texas. Where each week we're talking about liturgy in everything from daily living to following Christ. Welcome back as we discuss the Holy Eucharist. Now, last week, if you remember correct, we, uh, we, or if you had a chance to listen to last week's episode, I won't say if you remembered correctly. If you were able to listen to last week's episode, then we talked about Holy Baptism. And I actually want to just say this up front. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, I would ask you to pause this episode and listen to that episode. I think it'll help inform some of the things we're going to pick up and carry forward as we talk about the Eucharist. So the Eucharist is the second major, the second sacrament of the church. I was going to say the second major sacrament of the church, but that'll open up a whole nother can of worms we discussed last week that we don't need to rediscuss. Uh, the second sacrament, and the reason we call it the second sacrament of the church is because these are two that were initiated by Jesus himself. Of course, Jesus was baptized, and then the table fellowship that he brought at the Last Supper um, with his disciples that is subsequently again picked up in Paul and Pauline and the Pauline letters as well. So there's a lot to talk about here uh, in the Eucharist. So I'm going to turn it over to Bryn to kind of give us the, get us going down a couple avenues here to, to unpack. Uh, but again, glad you're joining us talking about the Holy Eucharist today. Here we go. Here we go, Bryn. All right. Uh, well, I'm glad that we get to talk about this. I think you really can't talk about um, Holy Baptism without then talking about Holy Eucharist. And you can't talk about Holy Eucharist without first talking about Holy Baptism. So they always go together. Um, and I think one of the the major points that we made in the um, in the previous podcast about baptism was that it is um, it's full. Uh, it, it confers upon the baptized um, all of the um, membership. You're a full member in the body of Christ now, um, and we understand the body of Christ to be the church. The ongoing body of Christ in the world is the church. And so baptism is the entrance right into the church. Um, and so that's, that's important then because the church um, is then the, the ongoing um, uh, well, I mean, for, for lack of better, better, words, just, it, it is the body of Christ continuing in the world. Um, and so our, our participation then in Holy Eucharist is one of the ways that we continue. Um, and so, you know, you're only baptized once. We talked about that. You only get baptized once. Um, so then what do you do to continue your life? Um, you know, in, in the church? Well, we participate in, in Holy Eucharist. Um, and one of the important things that I think we should talk about, um, cause we haven't, we haven't yet talked about the other sacramental rites, but we, you know, spent a lot of time talking about what liturgy is. And we talked about the, the daily office. Um, we talked about our devotional prayers and all of that. Um, so one of the points that I think we, we need to make about Holy, um, Eucharist is that, it is, it is the principal act of worship for Christians. 
Um, so all of the other things that we do, um, all of the other prayers that we say, all of the other rituals that we participate in, um, point us to Holy Eucharist, um, that it, that it is the principal act of worship. Um, and these other things that we do prepare us for that. Yes. And that's an important distinction. Um, and I'm glad you referenced, and for those, since we've been doing this now long enough, let me just tell you some of the things that Bryn just referenced are in some of our earlier podcasts of this season. Um, so again, you can go back and listen to those as well. And unpack, we unpack a lot, a lot of that there. So the principal act of worship uh, and what that looks like, in, I'll just say this, uh, what that looks like in practice, in, in particularly in Episcopal churches, is our primary liturgy of the week, which is generally on Sundays, is going to be a Holy Eucharist service where we're going to have Holy Communion. That is what we're gathering to do. Now, you will see churches that will have that as their, it's usually their largest attended service. That's kind of the key to a principal service. And then those, there are churches that will have that, will have Holy Eucharist at their principal service, their largest attended service. But then they may have some other creative uses of the prayer book and liturgies. But we will all, you will always see uh, Holy Eucharist as a as an offering uh, at whatever the main services of the week. And there's important that's that's important for what Bryn just said. That's how we continue our journey uh, out of the waters of baptism. You know, it's uh, I like to say I like to look at it this way, Bryn. This is kind of maybe it's kind of weird. I think I might have stole this from Bishop Doyle. So I'll just, I'm going <laughs> to give credit because I'm pretty sure I might have stolen this. Um, baptisms are entry into the journey and Holy Eucharist becomes food for the journey. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm pretty sure that's a Bishop Doyle original. So I'm going to give credit there. Um, something as I, I just don't remember where I heard it. I'm 99.9% sure it's him. I just don't know where I heard it, him say that. And I think it, it's a good image. I'm right. It's a good image uh, yeah. that we're on this spiritual journey. As we've described, liturgy is, helps us on our spiritual journey, participation in liturgies, mm-hmm. uh, participation in Holy Eucharist. The liturgy itself can be very impactful on our lives as we receive nourishment for this overarching spiritual journey that we're all on. Um, you know, whether we want to refer to it as the process of sanctification you know, moving that direction or the, or as the Orthodox call it divinization. Um, Mm -hmm. They're very similar. They're they're different, but they're also more similar than they are different. Those two words and what we're basically talking about there, if I may put it simply is that God created us and within us, there is some image of God, some uniqueness that God has endowed us with that connects us back to God. And we're cultivating that and rekindling that connection back to God. That is what essentially those two words mean and and in the simplest way I can describe it. And liturgy helps us do that work, participating in liturgies like Holy Eucharist and Holy Eucharist in particular help us do that work. um, Yeah, I I think one of the, one of the just continuation of, of that, that I would offer is, you know, in the Orthodox tradition. um, And I think this is, you know, the Anglican tradition too, although we talk about it less, but is the idea of theosis that like ultimately if we're supposed to be made holy which sanctification means you know becoming holy or making something holy um to sanctify um if we're if we're trying to become holy it's it's because we're actually trying to become 
closer to God, God-like, um, and not in a, not in a, you know, all powerful kind of way, but in a, in a, in a way that we are united with God. Um, and as Christians, you know, the only way that we can be united with God is through Jesus Christ. That's, you know, that's what we believe. So, um, so it essentially means becoming Christ-like and participation in the Eucharist is the closest we believe we come to Christ, um, in, in anything else that we do. So it's, it's pretty powerful, um, stuff for us and pretty essential for that journey of, of theosis. Um, I mean, this might be a good place to talk about the movements as we, as we think about sanctification, divinization, becoming Christ-like, the movements of the physical liturgy of Holy Eucharist. So we, we take, we bless, we break, we give. Now, the outward sign of the Eucharist is the bread and the wine. Those are the outward signs, um, as we talked about last week, and it's, it's the introduction to, this, to the sacraments and sacramental rites. There's these outward signs of these two sacraments, holy baptism, it's water. Eucharist, it's bread and wine. But also included in that, without getting into heavy Eucharistic theology, we take our, we bring ourselves, we bring ourselves in the community gathered into that liturgy. So the Holy Eucharist is, is at least in our tradition, is never meant to be celebrated alone. So you mm-hmm. won't see, we don't have as clergy in the Episcopal or in the Anglican tradition, we don't have a, a call to celebrate Holy Eucharist every day so that we go either to the church or down to a, an altar in our house and celebrate it. We, we do it in community. So we're usually a few folks are at least gathered, um, mm-hmm. uh, gathered together. And maybe at some point, Bren, we'll talk about like right now, life right yeah. now, and yeah, what that should. looks like. Um, anyway, so in a perfect non COVID world, uh, we will, uh, we will gather in community so we bring ourselves. So that means when I say bring yourself, and I think we talked about this many episodes ago, you're not bringing a perfect version of yourself, right? You're bringing yourself in that particular moment, whatever baggage, joys, highs, lows, struggles, all of it is coming into that sanctuary. It's coming into that liturgy. And the beauty of that is the movements through the liturgy, hearing the scriptures, uh, hearing the prayers is God meets us right where we are. God doesn't look at us and say, Justin, you are just not in the right frame of mind today, so you need to get out. Now, I'll come to a caveat in a second, but for all intents and purposes, <laughs> we come in hopefully with some semblance that we want to be there. That's the real yeah. trick. And we're not harboring some severe animosity towards somebody else that is like eating away at our core. And that's the caveat, right? If we're really at odds with somebody else, whether it's somebody in our church communities or somebody in our life, then that's where we need to talk about, we'll come to this a little bit later in the sacramental rites. There's probably some work that needs to be done around reconciliation and forgiveness to truly come to the table with the right frame of mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, But setting that that example aside for a second, we come in in our day-to-day life, we come into worship, God meets us where we are, God takes us where we are, takes all of us, takes the whole community, blesses us. And this is the bit of the uncomfortable thing. God breaks us just like we break the bread so that it can be distributed. God breaks us so that we can be given back out to the world as well. Um, and that's what we do. Uh, we, we, we give, we give back. And if you think, if there's one thing I want to point out that I always find that sometimes is overlooked in our liturgy 
And it's probably the simplest thing that we do is the dismissal. The last thing we say uh, before we depart from the sanctuary, the one I like to say is go in peace to love and serve the Lord. It Uh is a missional statement because we've just been broken so that we can be distributed back out. It is go and do the work that God's calling you to do. Go live out your sanctification, your divinization. Go and be a place where God happens for somebody else. Um, and that's part of the work from the Eucharist is we, we receive this nourishment, this assurance uh, of the hope we find in Jesus Christ around that table. And we're connected to this larger narrative that is God's story in our lives. We're reminded of that so that we can then go out and do that. And every one of our dismissal sentences is a missional statement uh, and a reminder to us that our work and that liturgy has a purpose out into the world. Um, and I think that's always important to hold on to because if we're going to go through these motions, it's not the end in itself. It's the beginning of that next, of continuing, or it's not, it's a continuation of our journey. We come back and we pick back up and we yeah. move. Well, I think there's a, an important distinction to make in, in what you're talking about too. So when we talk about Holy Eucharist, we're, we're sort of talking about two different things. One, we're talking about the whole liturgy of Holy Eucharist, which is which includes sort of two parts, the liturgy of the word um, and then the liturgy of the table. And so we call that whole service a service of Holy Eucharist. But then within that, we celebrate, um, you know, what we call uh, what in the prayer book is actually called the great Thanksgiving, where we where we bless the bread and the wine, and then we receive the bread and the wine in particular. Um, and it's just important to say that they, they go together, um, that the whole service leading up to um, what happens at the table is pointing us in that direction and preparing us for that too. So it's not just sort of accidental. It's not just like there's a checklist of things that we need to do um, to be good Christians or something. And so like read the Bible, check, confess our sins, check, uh, recite the creed, check, uh, say prayers for ourselves in the world, check. Okay. Now we can receive Holy communion. Um, but rather those are all of the things that, that we know we need as Christians in order to live a life of faith. And then what is what is the ultimate sort of part of the life of faith is drawing nearer to Jesus Christ, which then when we approach the table and we receive the bread and the wine, we, we are receiving Christ, um, that we're the closest we can be to, to Christ. In fact, we're, you know, we're taking Christ into ourselves. We're making that into something that we become um, when, we, when we consume it. And so I just think that it's, um, you know, that it's important to, to talk about um, the whole shape of that, um, or at least to, to clarify that, because you're talking about the whole shape of that service, not just what's happening um, when we say the Eucharistic prayer and then when we receive the, the bread and the wine. So let's, let's get a little bit into what is happening in the Eucharistic prayer and what, what is happening when we receive the bread and the wine? By all means, I like to go big 
you know what they say, go big or go home. Yeah. I like to talk about the whole thing, Bryn, the whole yeah. thing, the whole thing, but you're right. There does need to be the distinction. And that's something we'll pick up later. I think we'll try to unpack liturgy of the word, liturgy of the table, if you will. So what is happening in the Eucharistic prayer? There's a lot happening in the Eucharistic prayer. Yeah. That, that, what we call the liturgy. So what I was describing, like Bryn said, is a whole big thing. So if we now drill down to just the second half of it, the liturgy of the table, there is a lot in a Eucharistic prayer. First thing I would just suggest everybody do, and this is going to sound funny maybe to you to hear me say this, but actually open a prayer book and read. There's four different Eucharistic prayers. Actually read what we're doing there. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you read the Eucharistic prayers, they start with, well, you have your invitations, you're, you're back and forth with the celebrant, you know, opening our hearts, moving ourselves into the purpose of why we gather, right? But then initially in most of the Eucharistic prayers, um, you, you get a brief version of salvation history, right? Mm-hmm. You get a, and that's yep. important for context because we're not perfect. We were not capable of doing it on our own. So Jesus had to come walk the earth to show us and give us access to eternal life. And you get that. And, and almost all the prayers will have something to the effect that we failed. So then through the Virgin Mary, uh, Jesus came about us, uh, came to, to save us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love Eucharistic prayer B because I always laugh when I re- recite. So you have, to, you have to see this in front of you. Uh, when I say this to maybe get the joy that I get, or maybe this is just going to be a clergy nerd thing. But in that prayer, we say, you make us worthy to stand. And inevitably, everybody's kneeling when we do Eucharistic <laughs> therapy. And, and that's the point, right? That's the point is that in Jesus Christ, we're able to stand. We're not, we're not there beating ourselves down. That's a, that's a kind of a theology within Christianity I've never been able to wrap my mind around because I find the exact opposite to be true in the person of Jesus Christ. Now that doesn't mean that I don't need to amend my life when I screw up, but it just means that because of Jesus, I'm able to stand in the resurrection. I'm able to stand and continue the work God's calling me to do. So you have that. That's the, usually the first chunk of that Eucharistic prayer is outlining our salvation history. Mm-hmm. That drives us right into the part of the prayer that is coming almost straight from Paul's. Uh, it's the it's the actual. In, um, here's the bread, mm-hmm. here's the wine, uh, and that's so salvation history right into the Last Supper, if you will, right into the we're gathered around the table. Here's the bread and here's the wine, and we're acknowledging that. We say when Jesus was with his friends, or when Jesus was with his disciples, or mm-hmm. when Jesus was gathered around the table, he. And I'm just thinking from different prayers, those in the prayer book and those in supplemental liturgies have different ways of saying that. He took bread. He broke bread. He said, this is my body. Took the cup. Blessed the cup. This is my blood. And then we segue right after that into now is where the, the, big, the big change happens. And I may be getting too detailed here, Bryn, so you can save me for myself. But <laughs> while I'm on this, you know, I'm going big now. I'm going big again. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm just going to let you go. Just let me go and then correct it all on the other end in in a far shorter way than what I'm doing. I'm taking notes. Good. So (laughs) then you get to the next major piece, which is invoking the Holy Spirit onto these gifts and and onto us. Like, I want to be really clear that is the bread and wine, but it's also us gathered in the space. 
and the and the high oh, hesitate. You're gonna you go ahead and shoot this word down. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this is low hanging root for you to just low hanging fruit for you just to attack on the other end of this. But the transformation happens. Mm. Uh, yeah, go ahead and you can you can get that one. Just, just you just take that and destroy that in a minute. Um, and then we continue to give thanks. All right, we give thanks. And then some of the prayers really that's where you after that particular section of the prayer itself, you'll start to see a little bit more differentiation amongst the, the the Eucharistic prayers is printed in the prayer book. Like for example, prayer D moves pretty quickly into what we would might resemble prayers of the people. So we work all our prayers into, into this. Um, so it, it gets to be, um, gets to be a little bit more unique, um, but it's a little bit more of giving thanks and, and uh, getting ourselves and preparing ourselves, if you will, to actually receive the bread and the wine, which is going to, happen pretty quickly after we say amen we got to break the bread that we're going to participate in so that is a south georgian justin yawn drilling down through it as fast as i can highlighting important things now bren's going to do everything i just did in less than two minutes <laughs> no i mean everything that you said is 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 right. I'm not sure what you're getting at with the transformation piece, unless it's just to invoke controversy about what exactly happens uh, when we when we bless the the bread and the wine. Um, so I can go with that because um, because there has been a, a a real debate in the church, and I think you'll you know for our listeners out there, if you've been to a variety of of Christian churches that celebrate some kind of um, some kind of table liturgy, you'll you'll notice that there are subtle differences between them, but there are actually some pretty significant differences um, in what we believe is happening that are reflected in how we um, practice and participate in this kind of um, in this kind of Eucharist. Um, so the major controversy, just to get explicit about it, is like what happens with the bread and the wine. Um, when we, when we, um, when we consecrate it. Um, and just to note too, that there's, that we believe there's a difference between blessing something and consecrating something. So we can bless all sorts of things. Um, and, you know, Justin and I can bless things, but also you can bless things. You can bless your home. You can bless your crosses. You can bless each other. You can bless your pets. You can, you know, there's all sorts of things. Blessing means to restore the the goodness of something, um, to to pray that God will restore the goodness of something. But to consecrate something is different, and only priests or bishops can consecrate things. Um, to consecrate something means to turn it from one thing into another thing. Um, and so we we believe then that we are turning bread and wine into something different than bread and wine. Um, and uh, and not just blessing it so that it's you know better bread and wine or sort of true bread and wine, um, but then this is where the controversy starts. Are we turning it into um, you know the DNA body and blood of Jesus Christ, which would be called transubstantiation? Um, to get you know technical theological about it, that means to turn it into the the actual physical body and blood of Jesus Christ, um, which our Eucharistic prayer says, you know, it, it uses that language of the body, body of Christ. 
um, and the blood of Christ? Um, or are we just making a symbol of, of the body of Christ? Um, and I, I think there's a theological term for that. Justin, do you, do you remember in particular, just, you know, if it's a symbol of, of the body of Christ, I'm, I'm isn't that virtualism? Isn't that, yeah, that, that sounds about right. Cause I mean, to give people a kind of a sense and we have to go back 500 years to the reformation for Eucharistic kind of the spectrum of Eucharistic theology, you had consubstantiation, which. So what would they believe was happening is literal body and blood transformation. Uh, and then transubstantiation. No, that's transubstantiation. Well, that, see, that's, it's developed since then. Because if we go read Martin Luther, he literally believed, who's the forerunner of consubstantiation. Now coming, beginning, remember uh-huh. he was a Catholic. His initial theology of the Eucharist was actually more right than transubstantiation, which adopted, because consubstantiation pretty much fell away. You occasionally uh-huh. hear it, but it pretty much fell away with him. But it was pretty radical. Transubstantiation, the only difference between those two is they believe that it was still bread, like the exterior was still bread and wine. The essence changed to the body and blood. And then you get to Anglicans, which as I, as I like to describe it, this is where we get a little orthodox, which I love. Mm-hmm. We get in the mystery. Mm-hmm. We don't drill it down. We believe it becomes the body and blood of Christ, but we said, why the heck try to figure out why, how it happens? Yep. You know, it's yep. kind of a mystery, but yes, some a change is happening. Yep. And it's important that change is acknowledged, but we're not going to say at this particular word, at this particular time, it happened. And then you go a little bit more left and you get to what uh, John Calvin, another big reformer, virtualism, which is essentially what Bryn just described. And then, the, and then just to finish this thought out, the other big reformer, Enrique Zwingli, was radical non-presence. The closest semblance of what he was talking about that I see today are what we call agape meals. Mm-hmm. It's a memorial meal. You're just remembering yeah. that Jesus. Remembering. There's no consecration. There's no blessings either. Um, it's just prayers. And we're acknowledging that Jesus gathered his disciples. And we're just remembering that. Yeah. Um, but I think so, it's important to point out too that like within the Anglican tradition, there's just an allowance of of latitude with it. And so kind of our our official our official statement is that we believe in the real presence of Jesus Christ um, at Eucharist. But that allows for the, I mean it 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 allows for transubstantiation and we have people in our congregations and we have clergy among us um, who believe in transubstantiation um, and it allows for consubstantiation. Um, and it, but it essentially says it's a mystery that we can't define that we we're told by Jesus Christ that we're supposed to do this. And he says, you know, drink my blood, eat my flesh. Um, and so we we know that there's something different happening here, but we don't know exactly what it is. And the church over the years has, you know, especially in the Orthodox tradition, has said it's actually not important for us to define that. Exactly. And I was going to say, that's my point, is that really, if you step back from all, at least from those three you just named, real presence, transubstantiation, consubstantiation, and even virtualism we're acknowledging something's happened. So there is something that binds all these theologies together. And we can, of course, I mean, priests and clergy can argue with one another, but at the end of the day, 
something happened and it's something that we want to respect and acknowledge. And most importantly, that consecration doesn't make priests holier than thou. It's what we're called into to, you know, throughout the development of the church and the role of presbyters, priests, and bishops, we're called in to consecrate that. That's our call. That's just part of our calling is to consecrate, uh, particularly at the table, um, the bread and the wine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think those are two important things I, I just want to make sure we're clear about. Like we can definitely love talking about Eucharistic theology, but I want us to get, I don't want you listeners to get too much in the weeds with that. And just remember that something happens and it's really important what happens. And that is, there is the body and blood of Jesus. Now we can debate all day long when it happens, where it happens, how it happens, which we've done throughout all of church history. Mm-hmm. But let's not lose sight of the fact that something happened and it has significance on our lives and the lives of those gathered who partake of that, which I think Bryn a few minutes ago made a really good job of making that point. So I just want to make sure after our little Eucharistic theology tangent, we don't lose that. I don't want you to lose that. It's really important. Um, well, I think there's a, there's a good segue. Um, you know, is this is a, first of all, this is such a big topic. I mean, we could talk about this for days. There's so much to say about what's happening in Holy Eucharist and what's happening, what's important for us in our discipleship. Um, and, you know, through our participation in, in, you know, receiving the body and blood of Christ. So um, just want to say there's so much more that we could say that we're not going to be able to say, and it feels kind of inadequate to just, you know, to sort of say what we're saying and, and not mention all of these other things. Um, but I think, you know, as we wind down, I'd like for us to talk about, um, about this time. Um, you know, we're, we're in the Corona time and we, you know, many congregations haven't gathered, um, aren't gathering or having very significantly altered gatherings. Um, and through this, especially in the beginning, when, when we were first having to go online and all churches were going online, at least all Episcopal churches were going online, um, there were some real questions um, where the, our theological differences um, and, and what we believe is happening at table sort of, you know, actually became real questions um, around what we can and can't do um, as the as the gathered church um, separated uh, you know by our physical distance from each other or things that we can and can't do when we're only online um, things that we can and can't do with regard to distributing communion um, all of those kinds of things it's you know our what seems like just a theological question, has become a practical question in this time um, because it's really affected how we participate in the Eucharist. It is, uh, you know, I see it a couple different ways. Um, I think a lot of what we're seeing happening amongst churches and, and how they're carrying out online worship and participatory worship online in its various forms is right now, I would argue, is probably more of a pastoral response. And in the moment, in the, in the crisis at hand, um, dare I say, trying to be comfortable with our folks, provide them some comfort. Um, 
So what I mean by that is you see churches that immediately pivoted away from Eucharist of any kind. Uh, and then you have me uh, here at St. Luke's been doing, uh, moved away from the Eucharist for a period of time and then worked with some colleagues and thought about it theologically and by virtue that there is a small group gathered by way of our recording staff and, and not recording, but our streaming staff, people who make it possible for others to participate. So I've moved back uh, over the last several months to doing uh, celebrating the Eucharist online, mm-hmm. but it, I acknowledge it's not the same. And there's a myriad of people who have called St. Luke's home before COVID that are not able to participate in the Eucharist. And, and, and I, and then I guess to follow that thought out, then there's other churches that are doing some conglomeration of what I'm doing, but having people pick up wafers and wine mm-hmm. and like packets and take it home. And during the part of the Eucharist uh, and, they they consume that and that's so what i what i think's happening here is and maybe the, i think this is i will say this i would go on the record and say this now that a lot of what we're seeing potentially will be deemed bad theology <laughs> after this pandemic's over and arguably even what i'm doing as much as i'm trying to make myself feel good about it i mean cuz i check a few boxes there's people in the space it's not just me um, who can partake of the bread in a safe way Mm-hmm. But I'm also acknowledging that my whole body doesn't have the opportunity to gather. So yeah. I think at varying degrees, this is from a theological standpoint, dangerous and not helpful. Um, but unfortunately, when you're in the middle of a crisis, you know, you, it's and maybe this is a radical example, but I would presume I'm not a battlefield medic. I had a, I have an uncle, I have several folks in my family who served in the military and one was a medic. You know, you don't go up to the person who's injured and say, well, you should have done that. Let's talk about why you should. You're going to try to make them comfortable and help them. And, and then you're going to probably, after the fact, in recovery, somewhere along the way, the process will be, could have done that differently. Now, couldn't mm-hmm. we? Um, and I think there's going to be a lot of that on the other side. And I, and I think our bishops have had a little bit more opportunity to do theological reflection than like you and I, Brent, on the ground when we're literally living week to week, trying to figure out what's next. What are we going to do? How are we engage our people? How do we do worship? And then the last thing I'll say, which is going to sound like a criticism that I think of the, of the product of where we are right now is people don't have lit yet. They don't have our podcast, (laughs) but by way of saying this, that the reason I had a hard time pivoting to morning prayer or liturgy of the word only as some churches have done is because my folks don't know that. It's mm-hmm. not part of their tradition. And it's so unfamiliar to our people that it caused more harm than good. Yeah. You know, people were longing to hear the words, even if they knew they couldn't partake of the bread and wine, they wanted to hear the words from the Eucharistic prayer because we've been hearing those words every Sunday, if not more regularly, depending on how, how often you attend services throughout the week. For some of my folks, for 30, 40, 50 years, um, and all of a sudden not have that, was hard. So, so we're kind of in this interesting place that I do think a lot of what we're doing post COVID will be, well, we could have done that differently. And, and during the next pandemic, we might be more prepared um, to do that. Uh, but I don't know, maybe not. Actually, if I'm honest, let me just be really honest. Cause I know Bryn's thinking it. So I'm just going to say, <laughs> it. I doubt we will. I doubt we will. I, and I don't mean to be a cynic, but I doubt we will. I, I, I think, the biggest fear for me post-pandemic 
is that we're all going to try to rapidly go back and do exactly what we did before the pandemic mm-hmm. and forget everything we've learned, could do, could possibly do, how nimble this pandemic has made us be, that mm-hmm. we're going to want to kind of, God forbid I use this metaphor for Episcopalians, but be the frozen, just freeze ourselves again, just be the frozen chosen. Because COVID had to thaw out, thaw us Anglicans out, not just Episcopalians, but all branches of Anglicanism. We had to become more nimble uh, really quickly. Um, which has not necessarily always been our strong suit. If I'm well, just to, but I think there, you know, you can, and people have criticized liturgical churches for being, you know, set in their ways or something like that. But I think what has, what we can see and that I think is a real strength is, yeah, we could pivot, but we just pivoted to a different part of our liturgy you know, in, in many ways. And then it is an opportunity to teach, um, you know, something different. My own community was already um, saying morning prayer and then having Eucharist when we gathered before. So it was a loss for us not to have Eucharist be part of what we did, but, you know, but we already knew morning prayer. So it was easy for us to continue to do that and then to like grow further into that. Um, but I will say too, yeah, there may be some things that we do imperfectly, like should we, you know, should we do Eucharist? Should we give Eucharist to people in their cars as they drive past? I don't know. Um, should we, you know, um, should we do prayers of spiritual communion um, for people in their churches? We did that for our Christmas service because we, we really did want to hear the Eucharistic prayer, even though we weren't going to be able to participate. Um, uh, in that, um, you know, those are questions that we might debate, but I will point out there are some things that we are not doing and that we aren't going to do. Um, and, and this does speak to some of the differences in our Eucharistic theology. Like for instance, I have, uh, I have a quart of grape juice in my refrigerator here and I've got a loaf of bread on the counter. Um, I, I'm not going to get those things out. I'm not going to tell you to get the grape juice out of your, you know, fridge or the wine in your cupboard, um, and, and your bread and put it in front of your computer screen. And then I'm going to say a prayer. Then you're going to participate in, you know, eating the the body and blood of Christ. So we will say like a hundred percent, we don't believe that that is, is the body and blood of Christ. Um, that would fall under that Eucharistic theology of, of it being just a remembrance, like pure remembrance. Um, and so there are people doing that. There are churches who, who are doing that, or maybe even are, you know, giving you uh, a wafer and a little cup of wine that you can have that came from the church. Um, uh, and then, you know, having a, a Eucharistic prayer said, and then everybody takes it at the same time. Um, that's that's not the theology that we believe. Um, and so, so strongly that like, you know, at the, at the beginning of this, our bishops, you know, were on record for, for basically saying you can't do those kinds of things. Um, so even though we're trying to, um, trying to figure out the best we can, there are still boundaries. Um, so we're trying to be flexible within that, but we also see that there are places that we're not going to go as a church. And I think that's that's important. The boundaries have to be there. And if and to, to re, almost rebut myself, 
that, you know, we need to think about this after the fact and we need to work on it and because the boundaries are important. You know, I agree with you wholeheartedly that it's not, that is not our theology. We are one bread, one cup. You don't, you know, I don't pass out 270 wafers um, before Sunday service and have you hold it up as if that's me consecrating through the television screen or through your computer screen or whatever, however you're, you're engaging with us. Mm-hmm. It's not the same. Now, I have seen churches do what I referred to earlier in this podcast as agape meals and acknowledge that this is not the Eucharist. And I think that has been comforting to people. They're not reciting Eucharistic prayer. They have just leaned heavily on Christian tradition, which would be the radical non-presence, the memorial feast is just a way of connecting, but they're not trying to sell it uh, theologically as the Eucharist. And there, there's some to be said that that might've been very fruitful. And what I, all this brings me back to is what Daniel said on our incarnation podcast that I thought was really important. We're in the desert. Yeah. We're going to get out of the desert when God calls us out of the desert, you know, whatever that is, but we're not alone in the desert. We have each other. Um, and I think that's what we have to lean on in these times, the community, uh, the relationships. So is worship what we all want? Probably not. No, I definitely know there's people who want, you know, they want everything back. They want to be able to take bread and wine, but they also, mm-hmm. for safety and health reasons, no, we can't. Mm-hmm. The church is also not in a place uh, like we, we've been historically during at epidemics and pandemics of having to serve as the hospitals is treating the, the, the sick. We our modern, at least in our country, our modern yeah. healthcare system is able to do that. So the best gift we can give is not come together and live into our theology for the Holy Eucharist. And that's yeah. been hard. And, and we've been at it now since March of last year. Mm-hmm. So that's no short walk in the desert, but here's the beauty. We know the desert will have an end point. We know we'll come out of the desert And maybe, just maybe, when we gather, we'll gather with new eyes and a new connection to what the Eucharist really means for us, what partaking of the bread and wine really means. Because I have to be honest with you, human nature tells us that sometimes when we do things repetitively, we forget how important it is. And I can imagine that this drought from the Eucharist for a lot of people will awaken us to, wow, I really missed that because blank. Yeah. And it'll be very profound to hear those stories and, and very, I think, joyful for me as a clergy person to hear people articulate a very, a very a spiritual awakening, if you will, a, a very yeah. deep spiritual awakening. And that's well, beautiful. By, by way of just reassurance, though, too, and as we, as we end here, I think, um, just want to point out, though, um, that what, what you were alluding to is that we are still the gathered body of Christ and that we find, we find blessing in our, our gathering, even if it's online, even if it's, you know, um, in a virtual space or, or ways that we, um, you know, feel are imperfect. We are still, and I think we can really celebrate, we are still the body of Christ um, and by virtue of our baptism and by virtue of the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, um, even if we aren't able to participate in, in Holy Communion right now, um, we are the body of Christ. We are. And that's where we're going to end it. Uh, and I want to just say this. Email us if you have questions. We can pick up questions if you, on future episodes. As Bryn said earlier, this is a big topic. So email us. Emails in the show notes. Thanks for joining us today. 
and we will pick up on sacramental rights next week and continue our journey uh, through this beautiful part of our of our liturgy and our our book of common prayer so thank you for joining us today lit is a broadcast of the reverend Bryn bond and justin yon priests in austin texas music is provided by alitu if you would like to reach out to us, please find our emails in the show notes. Please email us any questions and we will answer them as we are able. Thank you for joining us today and we look forward to seeing you next time.